social determinants of health into professional teams, improving healthcare delivery to patients and families. These are the themes of our Urban Service Talks, a podcast featuring the stories of students from a variety of healthcare professions, learning together to serve patients in our underserved community. We are a group of curious Urban Service Track AX scholars, sharing insight to educate and spark change wherever our stories are told. Welcome everyone to another episode of Urban Service Talks. Today we will be discussing the City of Hartford, Connecticut's door-to-door COVID-19 vaccination program. We will hear from some of the individuals who made this effort possible and how its unique boots on the ground approach helps to foster trust in public health. My name is Sarah Schulwolf and I'm a second year medical student at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. I am also an Urban Service Track Scholar in cohort 14. My name is Julia Levin, and I'm currently serving as the AmeriCorps member at the Connecticut Area Health Education Center Program Office at UConn Health before starting medical school next year. For this episode, we're joined by Liani Arroyo, Alex Greenbaum, and Connor Merchant. Liani is the director of Hartford, Connecticut's Department of Health and Human Services and oversees five divisions aimed at improving and protecting the health of the city's residents and visitors. Liani holds a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Wellesley College, a Master's in Public Health from Columbia University, and is certified in public health. She has worked in nonprofit and government sectors for over 20 years. Alex has worked as a licensed practical nurse for 29 years and spent a majority of this time as a pediatric home health nurse. Alex started at the City of Hartford Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, as a volunteer when HHS began administering COVID-19 vaccinations during the pandemic. Currently, Alex works part-time with HHS as a member of their COVID-19 response team. And last but not least, Connor currently serves as the lead community health worker for the Hispanic Health Council based in Hartford, Connecticut. He leads a team of five community health workers, or CHWs, at the city of Hartford's Department of Health and Human Services and is a recent graduate of the University of Connecticut Department of Public Policy. He has assisted the city of Hartford during the pandemic in events such as mass vaccination clinics, at-home test kit distribution, door-to-door vaccine initiatives, and routine testing clinics. Awesome. Liani, Alex, and Connor, thank you so much for joining us. We are really, really excited to get to chat with you today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, you're so welcome. Um, So all of us are local to Connecticut and many of us to the Hartford area, but For those of us listening who are less familiar, would you be able to provide us with a brief overview of the community that you serve? Sure, I can take that. Um, uh, Hartford, Connecticut is the capital city of Connecticut. We are an urban uh, location. We are the fourth largest city by population in the state, but that that sort of um, belies the fact that in area, we're, we're fairly small as a city. We're a very, uh, very compact city. Uh, our population is just slightly under 122,000 individuals. 87% of our population identifies as uh, people of color. The largest self-identified group is, being, is Latinos, um, followed by African-Americans uh, as the second largest group. So um, we are also, uh, you know, a relatively young city overall. Uh, by last count, when I did this right before vaccinations, about half of our population was below the age of 32. 
and about half um, or half are above the age of 32. So overall, a young um, and diverse population. And so we are home to, just like many of our uh, larger municipalities, home to many of the region's uh, social service agencies, home to three, to three hospitals. So lots of activity that happens here in the city of Hartford. Thank you so much for giving that background. I think definitely for our non-local listeners, having that perspective really will will help them as we move forward in this conversation. Um, so now kind of focusing on the topic of our episode, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the city of Hartford COVID response and how the specific door-to-door vaccination program fits into that. So, you know, one of the things in terms of the overall response for the city of Hartford, when we began this um, this work in COVID, we thought we would be but a wee bit player in terms of vaccinations. We did not think that we would be a, you know, essentially a major player in vaccinations in the city of Hartford. Um, We viewed ourselves and our team um, that started out this process really viewed this work as filling in the gaps to make sure that we capture those that are most vulnerable and we put together a team that would assist us in doing that. So Connor's, um, you know, a big part of that team. Um, he, you know, he came on as we were moving into vaccinations, but we were working with with an agency um, through which Connor comes with us, a partner agency that knew the community, knew how to work with the community members, knew how to access. Um, and how to create access and how to gain access and trust of community members to be able to to, um, get them thinking about vaccinations. That organization was um, one of three organizations that we partnered with. So it's Hispanic Health Council, Hartford Communities That Care, and Family Life Education. And each individual entity has sort of like their own um, sort of flavor here in the city of Hartford. They have like their own sort of specialty of people that they work with. And so when vaccinations came around, Connor and his fellow community health workers were already on board, had sort of getting their feet wet in terms of trying to learn about um, uh, COVID and how to work with community members. And so when we started the vaccination work, it was really about, we're just going to do this. We're just going to sort of uh, fill these gaps that we know are going to exist. You know, unbeknownst to us, we were one of the first municipalities to go out into the community to actually vaccinate people. Our first clinic um, was actually vaccinating seniors at a senior center. And so in order to be able to do that work, though, we had a complement of CDC Foundation staff. Um, We had to turn to the Medical Reserve Corps, and that's where we met Alex. And so Alex came to us as a volunteer through the Medical Reserve Corps. And again, it was always with this thing in mind that we're only going to fill in gaps. Um, But as time went on, we saw that they were not gaps, there were craters in the response that existed. And um, our small but mighty team really basically just rose up to the challenge um, to be able to do that. Alex is, um, you know, she's, she's just Alex. We love Alex. <laughs> she just knows how to work with people and make people feel at ease. And she's be, she became a really central part of our response to the pandemic. And the same thing with Connor and his team of CHWs. 
um, you know, to, to be very upfront, they're younger than us, they're faster than us on the computers. <laughs> and so it made work when we we're trying to do on-site registration, which was new because most people were doing appointments and had to provide all this information ahead of time. Um, they were very helpful in being able to help us move quickly through this response. And so out of all of these, you know, cracks and then craters, we, you know, we rose to the challenge, created these large mass vac sites through Duncan. But even then we saw that there were people missing and that's where the door knocking campaign came into effect. So my background in public health is really community-based work, primarily with Latinos, um, but also communities of color generally. So I've done work on the national level training CHWs on how to do community-based uh, health education work. And so that was sort of the model coming into the work of door-to-door. -door. We know that in many uh, South American countries and, in, and even across Africa, the continent of Africa and many African countries and across parts of Asia, health workers, community health workers are not just educators, they're also medical providers. They do immunizations. They do testing in the field. And though that's not part of the scope of work for CHWs here in the US, um, we knew that they could at least open doors for us and make this work happen. And so the partnership to be able to do these vaccinations and, and reaching out to Dr. Gould, our medical advisor and saying, hey, I have this crazy idea because it's done in other places. The mayor supports it. What do you think really was what sort of everything just sort of gelled around that. Um, and, and, you know, I think Alex and, and Connor can talk to their experiences and in, in working and all of that. But I think it's helpful just to have sort of how we got to this point because we saw there were gaps and then we saw craters. And every time we saw something new, we made a decision and how we had to pivot to be able to come up with a new idea or a new strategy to try and get more people vaccinated. Absolutely, that is no small undertaking. And I think, Liani, what you mentioned about, um, you know, we were just thinking we were gonna fill in a gap, this kind of story of everyone's life in the pandemic where you thought it was gonna last a couple of weeks. And now here we are two years later doing the job that in theory, larger organizations or government organizations should be providing but you know here you are putting together a group of volunteers and different professionals um getting that work out to the community so that's really really impressive and i think we all feel very fortunate to you know get to even play a little part in that um i was hoping you might be able to briefly and apologies because i know it sounds like you have you know, got a master's in this, and this is a huge topic, but for those of us who might not be as familiar with what you mean by community-based work and community-based healthcare, would you be able to sort of summarize that? Sure, so it's about really meeting people where they're at. Um, the healthcare system in this country relies on people going to a centralized location where um, providers are, and, and that depends on appointments and things like that. And then when we talk about community-based care, it's really about taking the resources and the services out into the community and providing them where people are at. And so you can do that with certain things um, in different ways, either through door-to-door, -door, like with vaccinations, or you can do it through mobile clinics, as we've seen, um, you know, uh, like RVs and things that go out and provide services. So that's when we talk about 
really having care rooted in the community. That's what we're talking about. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. So full disclosure, I was fortunate to be able to participate in one of these door knocking events. And I guess stepping back a little, something I noticed when showing up was it was so well organized. You know, we were given a sheet, we were told exactly which streets to go to, exactly which houses to knock on, what to say, who to talk to, who to call. And you know, as you were saying, this was an effort that you were putting together kind of as you were seeing these problems come up. So would you be able to, and any of you, tell us a little bit more about the logistics of this program? Like how did you even know what doors to knock on or what areas would potentially be the best to target? Um, and what were kind of the overarching goals of doing this? Some of the logistics, um, like you said, you know, meeting them where they're at, we wanted to find those high traffic areas. So we, you know, we ended up, um, you know, shopping plazas, um, grocery stores, bodegas, you know, bus routes. Um, and so you're asking about the route, how, you know, we have a, a group of um, local uh, residents that uh, we utilize as canvassers and they've um, been very um, critical uh, elements to, to understanding the layout of the city and certain um, certain information that's, that comes from living in Hartford over um, several years. And so we also um, utilized our, our epidemiologists and the case rates, um, the positivity rates from the state, and they generated some GIS maps for us to uh, indicate what were the, the most afflicted areas based on positivity or um, you know, age range, depending on the type of information um, that we were that we're canvassing for, because as you know, we'll canvas for our clinics. And then if we, you know, see that there's there's this need that isn't reaching our clinics, you know, we try to adjust those hours. And that's that's kind of in part how the door knocking, you know, arrived. It's, it's like, OK, well, we need something on the weekend for the people that are you know, not going to be able to make it during the week. Um, so that's just a little bit of background on that. Some of us, we were, we were given, like you said, the groups, and then we dispersed to the areas. And what we would do is have our, all of our materials with us. And not all of us went specifically door knocking, because personally, I don't even answer my own door. Um, some people, that's just the world we live in. So some of us found prime sidewalks, sidewalk areas in front of either a bodega, a store, whatever, because it's public property. And like Dr. Gold and I bought two chairs because you can't give a shot to someone standing up. And we would find people and have them sit in because some people just, it could be just a matter of they are working during our clinic or their kids are home from school. And it could be time. It could be um, healthcare issues. It could be a lot of different reasons why they couldn't get the vaccine. So as Liani said, that there, us going to them is very important. And also, we also have translators and translated material to answer any questions that some people have, because there's a lot of mistrust and misunderstanding about the vaccine. So we are able to answer questions and we're, we're not able to vaccinate everybody but at least we can answer questions and give material about it so people can think about it and give them the right information and then give them our address and phone number in case they want it. But we have all of our materials with us and then we can meet up 
And then we have each other's phone numbers in case somebody doesn't have the materials or somebody runs out of vaccines because we already have it drawn up before we go out. So that way, like Liani one time was a runner passing stuff around so we can get you know as much stuff done as possible. And we hit key points because a lot of people just have questions and you know we kind of talk them through it, answer questions, and we were able to hit a lot of people that way. And so that's our goal is to be able to answer questions because there's a lot of misunderstandings out there that people hear just from other people, not just the news or, you know, anything like that. And so we go out there with our supplies and wherever we are. And like you said, we, you know, don't go out there alone. We go out there in groups anywhere. It doesn't matter what town you're in and we have everything ready and we still do the monitoring we still have our supplies and our kits and our resources. And if it's a language that we don't have a certain translator, I use my Google Translate just to make sure somebody knows exactly what we want them to know and answer any questions. So, and then sometimes if we can't locate them because they say they have their first shot, we'd call into the office and have someone look it up. So we, we will be able to help them. And that's just our goal is to, as Liani said, is to get out into the community where they are because they can't always get to us. And there's just a variety of different reasons why. Yeah, thank you, Connor and Alex, for giving us the background about the logistics and the resources. And like Sarah was alluding to earlier, or even just said directly, this really was, this is no small undertaking. And it's clear that although maybe the aim of this pro these projects or these programs are a little bit different than other initiatives that you've put on, you are really working to fill those gaps. And not, and not only those gaps, but those craters, like Liani was talking about earlier. Um, and I also think, Alex, it was really interesting. I also had the opportunity to participate in one of these events. Um, and it was kind of, it was refreshing to know that a, a quote unquote success wasn't just a shot in an arm. You're talking about having conversations with people and working to exactly. break that distrust and really just engage in an informative and objective conversation with someone, giving them the facts that they can then use to make informed decisions about their health care and the health care of those around them. So I, I think agree. it's really also important to remember that a success isn't a shot. It's a conversation and opening a door to then future trust for public health officials. Correct. I, excuse me, I feel that that our goal is to engage, inform, and vaccinate as many people as we possibly can, and just, just starting with the information, the correct information, and to get them on that right track, because six months ago, we're, we're a lot farther along than we were just six months ago. Yeah, and just, just you know, building off of that, like, shortly the uh, that's mainly what we as CHWs are, are doing is you know combating disinformation doing outreach trying to um, start a conversation that can ultimately uh, you know if it doesn't result in a vaccine where it's going to at least have the information that you can reach out to us you could give it to somebody else if they um, that you know that needs it or you know just be safer with you know the, the protection protective equipment that type of thing. And the community health workers, which you hear as CHWs, are our first line. They're the first, pe the first people that people come into contact with usually that do all the registration and paperwork and our translators and almost everything. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I'm building off of that. So 
And as part of the urban service track, something that we are really taught to embrace is this idea of interprofessional and team-based care. And I think something that at least I noticed, and I wonder if Julia, you noticed this too, in taking part in the door knocking effort was how interprofessional the teams of people were. So, you know, I remember in my group, it was myself, a medical student. I think we had a doctor, at least a nurse, a pharmacist, a community health worker, and someone else from the community who, you know, is familiar with the area. Um, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little more about how you feel like using an interprofessional group contributed to the outcome in a way that might have had a different effect if it were less diverse or less interprofessional. Um, I don't know if we want to start with Connor and you could maybe also speak to the role of the community health worker as I think that's something maybe our listeners might be less familiar with. Okay, so so the, the community health worker is essentially, like I said, doing the outreach, doing the educational work. Um, we are, uh, well, my team is answering the phones. We're participating in the canvassing um, as, as far as, you know, uh, hosting the information and our city um, and our city canvassers are familiar with the streets. So they're helping us, you know, know where to go. Uh, know how to navigate and in some some of the conversations as well. Um, and so we try to facilitate as much of that conversation um, with and, and we have the nurses and the the other professionals available when the conversation gets too far uh, into the details where we're not certified to talk about. So essentially, if you know there's medical related questions um, that are not, CDC um, uh, education level that, you know, if it's a clinical question that we're going to, we're going to bring in um, a nurse, we're going to bring in someone like Liani uh, to describe that with, with the most accuracy and having, you know, that inter, the interprofessional part is really important because like I said, the, the, we we're providing the education, which just starts the conversation. Like if you, if you want to know about um, why a testing site is asking for insurance um, or is is only open on these days, you know that that's it's now we have, now we have kind of have to bring in an administrator or um, you know direct you to somebody that's that knows about the finances of of how that's be, you know testing or is being administered. Um, and so that, that in seeing Dr. Gould and the UConn students, along with, um, you know, City of Hartford employees with the COVID response vests, uh, you, you know, it's, it doesn't look like a crowd of, of um, academics or, you know, uh, just, just one group of, of people. Um, and, and, I, and I saw a lot of conversations that were started, you know, by our canvassers and, and then they, well, we have a doctor over here that you could talk to about more. And, and so it, it really needed that diversity because Hartford, like you said, is, is a little more diverse than um, some of our surrounding towns. Just wanted to chime in on that, um, you know, to, to pick up a little bit on what Connor said in terms of diversity of the groups. Um, we, we, we tried as much as possible to make them as diverse as possible, not just by occupation, but also by race, ethnicity, and language, um, because it, it, doctors and 
uh, are trusted uh, by some individuals. Nurses are trusted by other individuals. PAs, APRNs, like just everyone may have an individual that they may connect with and it may be because of their title. It may be because of their last name being similar to, to someone they know. It may be because of the accent in their voice. Um, but all of that provides an in. So if we see that one person isn't successful, there's someone else on the team that can try. And that just gives us sort of multiple bites at the apple, as people like to say, to try and at least leave, um, as a friend of mine, little grains of salt with that person <laughs> as, as we move forward. I think all of your responses really do, do point to the fact of the beauty of interprofessional teams and interprofessional education. We're talking about providing people with the, the information that they need where they are. Um, so I just moving on to our next question, uh, we talk about being how, or we talked earlier about the what community-based care is, and, and that's how to be able to directly meet community members where they are, where there are. And in this case, we're talking outside of their front doors or in their corner stores, along the sidewalk, that kind of thing. And I think that really is what makes this program and programs like this very special. So countless times our faculty members and students that have had the opportunity to participate in these programs have told, told us stories about giving shots through car windows or having discussions on front porches with one individual that then leads to entire families getting vaccinated. So we're talking about that one tiny grain of salt in this big, big world, um, but one person at a time, it really does make the difference. So I was wondering if, me, if, if you guys would be willing to elaborate a little bit more about the personal effects of this program. So feel free to share any anecdotes um, that stick to you uh, involving your participation. And, and also, how did engaging community members in programs like this influence these people's willingness to get vaccinated? Um, I think personally, for me, it shows that um, when doing work like this, when you're dealing with something that's new, that has a lot of unknowns where the, the science is constantly changing and so communication and what you're communicating has to change. Having that personal connection is critically important. And I think for us, what we saw, you know, what when we were going out to do even the pop-up clinics with no appointments, we heard a lot of, it can't be done, that's gonna be impossible, people aren't gonna wait in lines. Um, we heard a lot of what, what wasn't gonna work um, and what we saw was what worked and which was a very diverse team of individuals providing vaccinations, registering and providing education. And so, um, you know, our, our former nurse supervisor is a six foot, you know, was a six foot tall mm -hmm. Jamaican Jamaican immigrant who commanded the space, right? Then you had me shouting in Spanish and in English, um, working lines, telling people what was happening. And then you had Alex, if someone was crying about to get a shot, whether they were 85 years old or whether they were 18 years old, holding their hand and singing, you are my sunshine. Um, you had our CHWs who looked like a lot of the young people that were getting vaccinated but were unsure. So when I think about that, the, the effect to me, it was just an acknowledgement that what we were doing was right. And it was the right way to do it and the right way to do it. Um, and we showed, I think, that these types of clinics could happen 
and that they could be safe, that, that they could be equitable, and that you could vaccinate Black and Latino people at high numbers if they're provided the access to the vaccine. So, so specifically with the hesitancy aspect, um, we, I tried to, uh, I generated a, a survey and I really wanted to see what um, trends of hesitancy were popping up. So um, while canvassing, we, you know, we, we, we tried to administer this and um, we got over 400 responses and the section that had, you know, what do you, why, why would you not get vaccinated or what's keeping you from getting vaccinated was a really important part, um, you know, feedback. And, and it was a, a part of the, the pandemic where incentives and um, the, the, especially the monetary incentives were starting to play a role and people were, um, and this is just my story, but the, uh, the lottery effect um, where people were saying, well, why don't you pay me to get the vaccine? Um, and, and that kind of, uh, that kind of mentality where, you know, you have certain people held out or weren't able to get vaccinated. And then there was a reward for it. Um, you know, I heard, I heard a lot of people that did not like the fact that they got vaccinated early and they didn't have the opportunity to get this lottery. Um, so, you know, we tried to have other fun ways to incentivize and reward um, our residents for, for being vaccinated, whether, you know, we, we had a community block party or, you know, free ice cream and hot dogs from uh, our local entrepreneurs. So we, we, we wanted to, um, I would say make it make the it worth the while, not just a, a not just a vaccination. Uh, just to speak on the one conversation leading to more, um, you know, that having that one conversation with the, uh, the head of the household, whoever that is, um, the person that's going to bring that information home and make sure people are are um, keeping up to date. We I remember one conversation that led to a family of six um, arriving and they were, you know, they, they, they spoke Spanish. I myself am not fluent in Spanish, but that's where the diversity and the, the skills on our team really shine because, you know, we have people here that are fluent and, um, you know, that, that have families of their own and they were really able to, to comfort these people. And I'm, it may have been that they had their friends come as well. So, you know, it's, it's the local grassroots level, um, conversations are really, was what I see is most rewarding because like we said, we're trying to uh, prove that we can indeed vaccinate and, um, and, and properly educate uh, these communities that are not receiving the same, uh, the same services at, at, at the same rates that we're seeing in other places. So it, it, was, it was great to, to really, to watch that impact occur. Awesome. Also, just to, just to add, just to add, um, one of the other things about the community health workers is, and, and Hartford's population in general, we wanted to make that access, that providing the access, as remove as many barriers as possible. So, you know, we did calls to um, the housing list. We did, um, you know, while we're out canvassing, we could register people while we're, um, you know, while we're out on the road. So there were so many levels of, of, you know, removing that, um, that registration barrier um, and, and us letting us do that for, 
for the residents. That was, you know, a way that we really tried to remove one of those barriers. Yeah, that's so important. We, um, again, as part of Urban Service Track, learn a lot about the term that we use as social determinants of health. So kind of exactly what you're saying, Connor, those stumbling blocks that maybe the average nurse or doctor in their office doesn't think about when they're wondering, oh, why isn't this patient coming in to get vaccinated? But, you know, something that to the person living their life in the community um, is going to be a real impediment. So we applaud you for, you know, making this happen. And I think if I've learned anything in med school, it's that uh, ice cream is a really powerful motivator. So <laughs> a fantastic uh, way to think outside the box for sure. Um, so kind of wrapping up here, you know, coming back to what we've been talking about again and again with, you know, we put this program together on the fly. It was filling in gaps that turned into craters and addressing these needs that weren't met. Um, it is the case, hopefully, now that we've seen this happen and now that people, quote unquote, in charge are aware of some of these discrepancies, we may see a move towards policies getting put in place, whether on a state level or a federal level, aiming at addressing some of these social determinants of health, some of these inequities. So I'm curious from your perspectives, um, I'm electing you all to set it right now, you know, what policies do you think should be put in place to ensure not only uh, equitable vaccine distribution, but also that could help uh, bolster trust in public health? I think from my perspective, I would have used the concept of targeted universalism in order to be able to have true equitable access to, to the vaccine. So for those that are not aware of what targeted universalism is, it's about creating policies that lift all bolts, but also try to focus on the bolts that always get left behind. And so you create specific policies targeting those particular groups that often get left behind. So one of the biggest, um, Examples of a targeted universalism policy is the Affordable Care Act. Everyone had access to it, but there were certain policy levers within the legislation that really sought out those people that were most impacted by being uninsured. So there were subsidies for low-income people. There were um, uh, outreach efforts that were funded to be able to ensure that those communities that um, have historically not have had access to insurance because of their jobs, um, had access to insurance or, or knew about the insurance, the new, um, the new insurance uh, possibilities. And so you had the expansion of Medicaid as well. So there were, again, everyone had access to health care under the Affordable Care Act but specific policies were created and levers were created in order to ensure that those that have been most disenfranchised or and are most impacted by a lack of access to insurance are able to access. And so, you know, when I think about the vaccine rollout, I think about the fact that cities like Hartford with a population, half of our population being under the age of 32 at the time, um, not being able to vaccinate as many people in the earlier waves because we had significantly fewer individuals that were um, 75 and up, 65 and up, 55 and up. Um, so there's that. I think about the fact that we were one of the hardest hit communities um, and, and that African-Americans 
had some of the highest death rates, and yet they had to wait to be vaccinated. I think about the essential workers that never got sent home that were told that they had to wait. And so if I would have had the opportunity to do something, I'm not saying that you don't use an age-based rollout for simplicity's sake, but I would have allowed our municipalities that have these populations, like populations like the city of Hartford, um, to be able to um, set some of their own guidelines on how they would be able to vaccinate. I think that would have been extremely helpful. It wouldn't have been, you know, I'll, I'll just stop there. <laughs> yeah, that was, that is, that I'm gonna have to get into uh, looking that up. <laughs> um, I think for me, one of the problems that I that I wish could I and I don't have an answer about um, how to address it necessarily, but um, the disinformation that came from uh, high levels, uh, public officials, um, certain um, not necessarily organizations, but they're not being support. Uh, for correct information, I think that caused a lot of harm, especially in the um, in trying to undo the education or the, the disinformation with education. So ultimately, that resulted in a lot of people being sick, getting other people sick that you know could have had it a lot worse, uh, including death. So um, the disinformation that came from uh, leaders, uh, I think it was a shame. I don't know what it would look like to address that in a in a policy, uh, but I think it needs to be at least looked at with um, with respect to uh, you know accredited organizations that uh, were doing the work to to um, to inform the public. Um, so I, I I would hope there there's something coming along the lines to. Uh, you know, have these fact checking things like Facebook and Instagram have their their um, fact checking models. I think you're saying you don't have an answer to a policy question that's going to address this misinformation, but really by having programs like this, where you have people with their boots on the ground, meeting community members where they are practicing this community-based care, you really are, a, a, you're, you're, you're addressing what you're saying you don't have an answer to. And maybe it's one small way to do it, but overall you're, you're, you're doing what you can in, in the small footprint of the entire, you know, the entire universe to get all <laughs> metaphorical. Here. Yeah. It's the, the grass level, <laughs> conversations that that help uh, but then it's you know it's a bell curve because then you run into the the uh the fringes and they're they're a lot less willing to have the discussion or um you know sometimes even even uh, aggressive or hostile so there's and everybody has the right to their opinion but um you know i think when it comes to people that are in a position to lead uh, the community for the best uh you know the best health outcomes and information uh, there should be some standards for that. That's Absolutely. why we have Liani. And that's why we just, we can't change the past. We can just move forward the right way. Because I don't think, as Liani said, science changes every day. The CDC is changing every day. And it's not going to be some miracle drug that's going to stop this. It's going to be the people doing the right thing. And so the more people that we can reach, the sooner we're going to become not new, not better, nothing but a more healthier planet and that's all we can do we can't change anything we can't change yesterday can't change an hour ago 
all we can do is what we're doing together as a team. And I think we're a great team. I think that's a really great segue into our final question as well. Um, so as future healthcare leaders, whether that be Sarah and I as, as future, future professionals or our, <laughs> or our audience listening here, if in the future we're tasked with setting up a program like the Hartford door-to-door vaccination effort, what would be your best piece of advice? I would say use data. Use data to inform the work that you're doing. I think um, you have to use data and you have to use common sense in your knowledge of the community. Um, when I think about our work on this, um, the data by itself would have driven me solely to the North End because that's our, our African-American community is woefully um, overall on, on a whole under vaccinated. The, the gap here in the city isn't as large as it is at the state, but the numbers of people where you have large amounts of people um, were on the south side. And so we looked at the data, we planned out our, our, our space, and then we looked at the equity. And there were weeks where we had more groups in the north end than we did on the south end. If we were able to have three groups, we'd put two groups in the north end, one group in the south end. And um, that, that sort of, you have to know your community and know the data, but data shouldn't only be the only thing you have to also look at the equity because sometimes the data can help drive the inequities as well. Yes, I want to build off of that because I've been working with a lot of the, um, a lot of data, a lot of Excels, and I really like that coming from uh, the Department of Public Policy. Um, And so including working with the data, I would say, one of the most important parts was the diversity that we had on the team. Uh, you know, it, it just would not have been as welcoming and successful if we did not have, uh, you know, the interprofessional connections, uh, you know, the white coats, the students from UConn that were so energetic and St. Joseph and uh, Quinnipiac. Uh, and then, you know, our, our, my, our coworkers that are uh, bringing their international um, perspectives on on um, these conversations. So, uh, yeah, and 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 the the Harford residents, the canvassers, we've got to really give them their flowers because they, uh, you know, they they facilitated a lot of these conversations. And um, yeah, that that for me was was a big a big part. From a healthcare perspective, I would suggest just don't let anyone change you, and listen to the people and stay yourself and be true that goes a long way in my opinion i think that's a great note to end on stay true to yourself follow the data listen to the community and be open to perspectives that might be unlike your own so yeah julia and i want to thank you guys so much for joining us today um this has been an awesome conversation and we really appreciate you coming to talk to us about the importance of programs like the door-to-door vaccination program. Um, And we're so grateful for your insight. And beyond that, all of the work that you have done and continue to do uh, to bring increased access to healthcare for the Hartford community, especially in the midst of this continually ongoing pandemic. So thank you guys so much. Thanks for having us. Hope to see you out there again. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much course. And huge thank you as well to uh, the other members of the Urban Service Talks team for all of our help in planning this episode. We appreciate you guys so much.
And as always, we like to end our episodes with a couple questions for our listeners to consider. First, how might you approach a person who's hesitant about receiving a specific medical intervention, such as a vaccine? Second, what role do you have as an advocate for social change, and how can you ensure to include voices from the community you serve? Have a great rest of your day and stay safe. This podcast is sponsored by Connecticut AHEC and UConn Health. Let's keep this talk going. Join us on Twitter at Talks Service. Instagram at Urban Service Talks or by email at ust.pod at gmail.com.